Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. It's really good to have you join me. Now, in this episode, I've got not one, but two returning guests appearing together. Adam Morgan joined me on episode number two, way back when I was just starting out in this podcast. So it's great to catch up with him again, have him back on the show together with Peter Fields, who was uh, in episode number 30. Peter, of course, as many of you know, is one half of the dynamic duo that wrote the long and the short of it. Now, we're together to talk about a very important topic, being dull. It turns out that being dull costs us not just millions, but billions of pounds and dollars every single year. And we're on a campaign to try and end that problem. So I got together with Adam and Peter to find out what does the research tell us about being dull and what can we do about it? Can we create a marketing world that's a little bit less dull? I think we'd all enjoy that. So here we are, my conversation with Peter Fields and Adam Morgan. Thank you both. And and we'll get in a minute to the big question. I'm sure people are wondering why you're on together. Uh, We'll get to that in a second, but but just for the listeners, um, if they don't know who you are, maybe I'll start with you, Adam, because you're guest number two. Who are you and uh, what do you do? Uh, So I'm the founder and uh, partner of a company called Eat Big Fish, which we specialise in challenges. So I've studied and written books about challenges for 25 years now, which is a fairly extraordinary idea, ever since Eating the Big Fish came out. And uh, yeah, I spend my life working and and, uh, helping challenges succeed. Now, I should say, big, big plug for your books, actually. Uh, Eat Big Fish is just phenomenal. I mean, I, I mean, certainly I, I, I've used it almost like the manual. <laughs> it's, it's like the sort of the challenger brand manual. So, you know, very understated answers to the question, but but well, I think the foremost kind of book on the subject of challenges. Um, I know I've always said this to you a few times, but I, my favourite book of yours is number two, yes. like of The Pirate Inside. Has that done any better since we last talked about it or any plans to... It's, uh, it's got a sort of hardcore of followers and enthusiasts like yourself. So thank you for that. Um, but didn't do as well as the first book. Yeah. And if anyone listening and watching that doesn't know the pirate inside was more about how to be an entrepreneur within an organization and create change with the constraints that you find yourself in 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 kind of more big corporate life um of which there are many people i think you know i'm amazed how many people i bump into that sort of are trying to create the revolution from inside so uh, yeah well interesting i originally wanted to call it how to be a pirate in the navy without getting hanged (laughs) <laughs> um, but you know because as you know you know you can get strung up from the yard arm if you try yeah. and step out but they wouldn't let me do that for some reason so it failed the word, uh, word <laughs> oh i do i see yeah, i see yeah. but you've been looking at challenges for 25 years now as you said any challenges that are particularly impressing you at the moment well i, I think kind of the usual suspects i suppose i'm really struck obviously by people like tony's i mean obviously oatley people like back market i think are really interesting people are actually challenging very fundamental preconceptions that we have about you know new is good for instance uh, i really like that kind of sort of fundamental upstream subversion of our expectations and assumptions that i think is necessary in the world we're moving into definitely and do you think uh, you know you wrote your principles 20 uh, well presumably more than 25 years ago do you think anything's changed in terms of those principles are they pretty fundamental and it's more the execution that might have changed in terms of being a challenger today compared to yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, it was written in a sort of more or less pre-digital world, so a lot has changed. But the fundamental principle that challenges challenge: you need to amplify your differences, be very clear what you stand against, what you stand for, sacrifice and overcommitment. You know, be ideas led rather than simply kind of consu- just consumer centric. Those things are important. I think what's very different now is when the book was first written, there was kind of one challenger in a category. You kind of work out there was kind of a leader and there's a challenger in a category. Now, because of the influx of money into challenges, there's any number of potential challenges in a category. So, and, and actually, 
the good news is that the really successful challenges kind of elevate out of that really quickly, you know, unbelievably fast. So the market leaders, unless they're really on their toes, get caught short and depositioned by it at the very least. The downside is it's much more jostling. Yeah, you know, to succeed, yeah. and you and you know that yourself. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very true. I mean, even like bank, something like banking, you have got Starling Bank, Monzo Bank, yeah. Tide Bank. You know, the, 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 you, you're right. There can be all, all manner of challenges compared to, you know, ten, fifteen years ago. So I think being clearer about your nature of your narrative. The reason I wrote Overthrow was about different challenger narratives. It's not just about David versus Goliath. There's all sorts of challenger narratives you can look at. Being really clear about your narrative because it's going to be different from the other challenges. In a sense, they are the real competition rather than the market leader now, I think. And one thing, I, I mean, we've had quite a few challenges on the, on the show, actually, which has been great. And I, I always get lots of inspiration having them on. You've always got to push more than you think you do, whether it's positioning, whether it's execution or whether it's go to market, whatever it is, you always have to, well, you, what phrase you use, overcommit yeah. a lot more than you think so. Yeah. One little stat, stat for you. So uh, you were on episode number two. I just thought I'd share the um, the podcast downloads actually, just for comparison. So I know the fun thing we had. I remember we were, you know, we were. It wasn't pilot, but you know, we'd we'd launched the podcast, yeah. and you very kindly said you'd come on as number two. And I know one campaign we love is Avis. Yes. You know, we're number two, so we try harder, which I've taken inspiration from. So I thought it was kind of ironic that actually of the first season, your podcast was downloaded in number two spot. Oh, from nice. season one. So, so congratulations. We lived up to our number yep. two. But I thought really interesting statistics. So, um, and again, showing you kind of challenger brands and how things evolve. We had 36 downloads on day one, <laughs> which I look back now yes. and I go, you know, you know, it's probably, you know, a few of my friends, a bit of family, and <laughs> whoever was down the pub that night. Anyway, yeah. in total, 1,625 downloads right. of, of the episodes since we did number two. Yesterday, there were 640 downloads of the episode I released yesterday right. in less than 24 hours. Interesting. So it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Three years of, three and a half years mm. now yeah. of, of, of listeners are now done in one day. Just shows yeah. the kind of evolution of the, yeah. of yeah, the kind yeah. of media and so on, which is great. Yeah. So we're going to have to beat that one next week when we no, launch no this. No problem. We'll go for it. We'll go for it. Peter, let me turn to you. So probably most famous, if you don't mind me saying, for the long and the short of it. And uh, we sit here 10 years on. So ha- looking back, how, you know, well, firstly, how, how has it gone compared to your expectations when you wrote the book? Did you imagine it would become one of the most famous kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say textbooks, but most famous pieces of work in kind of marketing? Well, it certainly tested my patience. <laughs> I mean, it would have been nice if this had happened, you know, in the first few years or indeed even the first year. It's been a real long, slow build. And I think, I think things had to align before it found its role. I mean, I think we were, we were, putting it out as a warning to marketing when we first noticed the impact, particularly of the performance marketing revolution and making businesses go very short term. We put it out as a warning when I think most in marketing were saying, crisis, what crisis? We're doing very nicely. Thank you very much. There's no problem here. Of course, you had to wait for that problem to manifest itself for a lot of these businesses to lose the growth and to be sitting there thinking what the hell happened before they were starting, I think, to become more receptive to the idea that actually walking away from brand and listening to all those very young tech nerds who told them, hey, love, brand is so last millennium, you just don't want to do any of that nonsense. They had to kind of come through that. And so, yes, it took most of 10 years before the book became well-known, certainly more than five um, we were helped along the way and people like Mark Ritson, bless him, picked it up and, you know, with a few swear words to give it a bit of communication. <laughs> of course, got it be Mark Ritson with that one. You know, he's been, a, he's been a, a, a good supporter and a good fan and has helped get it out there. But it's become a bit of a roller coaster now. I think a lot of people now 
know it because other people have told them they should know it. And that's that's a good place to be. And are, are you seeing evidence that marketing is changing because of the book? I mean, because if you look at the last 10 years, you know, it, it appears there's been a shift to performance marketing as digital channels have proliferated and away from brand building. Is Would that be true? Or are you seeing any evidence that... I, th- I think it, it, it has nowhere near as much as it needs to. I mean, there's an enormous job yet to be done that it, it hasn't succeeded in doing. But I think at least amongst uh, more blue chip marketers, it, the, the lesson has sunk in. People know there is an issue of balance and that it's not that we're at any point have ever been rubbishing the idea of short-termism and performance marketing. It's a necessary part of a successful business. But it's just got to be balanced with, you know, this business of a vibrant, um, well-known, very reassuring and very trusted brand. And yes, there are developments in the market, I think, of making brands more important, not less important over time. So it's completely the reverse of the absolute claptrap that was put out 10 years ago about the death the death of the brand you do still just occasionally come across pieces that say you know is brand marketing dead but there's far fewer of them out now than there were 10 years ago so i suppose if there is any benchmark of success it would be that that we have at least i think begun to make people realize that without a brand a business is essentially has no future it has no margin future anyway um so uh that is to some degree a success but you know there's tons more to be done and hopefully others will pile on in there it's interesting i think it to reflect on that in the light of what's happening with individual agency brands and holding companies Mm. so at the same time as you know uh, marketers out there are realizing the importance of brand holding companies are killing their individual brands off. Mm. They're combining them in in individual kind of, you know, yeah. offices where yeah. you know, the, the individual brand dies, it becomes the holding brand yeah. as the main company. Yeah. Very curious kind of countercurrent to yeah. that sense everywhere else that actually the brand is important. I think. No, absolutely, absolutely. It wouldn't be the first time that the, you know, agents of marketing were actually lousy marketers. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So, I mean, you could easily say that t- 10 years for long and the short of it to get where it is now, we are clearly lousy marketers. <laughs> or or um, you've demonstrated your point, which is, you know, you know, it builds in the long term. You build yeah. brand equity over the long term and you've yeah. done that with your book. You know, yeah. I think you, in a way you've proven it. The, the, my, my, one of my favourite observations from Ritson, actually, as you mentioned him, is he says, I think, the most important word is and in the long and the short of it. And of course, that's yeah. that's what the debate goes, isn't it? Because you get this swing towards brand, this swing to performance. And of course, I think we're having a much more balanced debate at the moment, aren't we? Which is, you can build a brand with, you know, in the digital world. It has constraints, it's harder, you have to do treat it in, in a different way. And actually, that thing we've kind of been moving away from was quite useful after all. And, you know, mm, it's mm. quite important to get a balance again. Mm. So like all these debates, people tend to forget the, uh, the bit in the middle. <laughs> Indeed. So to your podcast statistics, if, oh. if, if it's like being at school, this isn't it? Anyway. Um, Could do better. There we go. So we move on to episode 30 and we had 216 downloads on launch day and 2,800 downloads in total. So there you go. So it just shows the evolution from two to 30. I knew those bots were well paid. It's your, it's your charisma, Peter. It just oozes out of the microphone. Seeps. But it's quite funny. So I've had I've had guests on it, like, you know, maybe going back 18 months ago. So, John, how am I doing in the rankings? Am I, am I still top five? And I think, well, unfortunately, the podcast has grown so much in that time that it didn't matter who would come on, that you wouldn't be top five, you know, sort of thing. So anyway, but it, it, it's a lesson in itself. Um, 
Now, the question I'm sure people are wondering is, why have I got both of you on the show at the same time? So um, tell us why you're both here today. Well, Peter and I started in advertising a week apart from each other. Peter beat me by a week in the same agency. That extra week, it's been so... so What you learned in that week. (laughs) We worked together on the same beer account. Uh, I was the worst account man in the history of account management, and Peter was the finest planning trainee they'd ever had. And so we stayed friends, actually. And then in 1999, when I was starting uh, Eat Big Fish, Peter helped me do that for a few years. And so we just stayed mates. And then this project came up that I got very interested in. And I thought actually Peter would be perfect to help on that. So I went to talk to him about it. So the idea in it, it's one of those things where, um, you know, when somebody, listen, you're interviewing lots of people, but something somebody says a while ago just sticks in your head and you think, I'm going to do something with that at some point, but I don't know what. So I was interviewing somebody for um, A Beautiful Constraint, and he was a a designer, a writer for industrial theatre in South Africa. So industrial theatre is the kind of uh, theatrical plays they put on to teach safety procedures to miners, diamond miners, gold miners. And these are people of of, diverse ethnic groups, different languages, uh, not always literate. So word is is tricky to spend too much time on. So they put on these plays, songs and this kind of stuff. And he was talking about, you know, the fact you've got to disarm the group because they're heavily unionised, very suspicious of anything the management puts on. So it's charming and it's fun and it's theatrical. And, and you know, if you're, if you're talking about danger, you do these big kind of theatrical gestures to illustrate it. And I said to him, so, so why does it have to be quite so theatrical? And he said this fantastic thing. He said, when it's a matter of life and death, you can't afford to bore the audience. And I thought, that's such an interesting idea, isn't it? Because for challenges, right? It's not literally life and death, but it is existential. You can't afford to board the odds. Mm. You need to engage your customer. You need to engage emotionally. All the things that, that Peter and Les talk about, you absolutely have to do as a challenger in space. So I thought, what am I going to do with that? I just sort of parked it on the edge of my mental workbench. And then Peter and I were kind of having a conversation and we both, you know, um, been in the business a long time. We've been in the business 40 years now. And one of the things that struck us in the conversation was for all that we've learned through all the, the, the wonderful kind of learning that, that um, Peter and Les and, and indeed others have put on and the data and indeed System One have kind of contributed to what we learn about marketing effectiveness. The reality is that actually when you stop and look at most brands and most communications, fundamentally they're as dull as they ever were. And actually that hasn't changed in 40 mm. years. You could mm. argue that that is actually worse for whatever reason. We might speculate about mm. why that is in a minute. And surely it's time for us to actually do something about that because things like CAN with all due respect to Can Lion, which is a wonderful event, they're complete anomalies. They're complete anomalies. And we, we turn up and we warm our hands at the fire of them and we turn our backs on the reality of the fact that actually most marketing, most brands are just very dull. So one of the questions for us was what could we do about that? And it seemed to us that actually one of the things you could do is get people much more interested in the whole topic of dull. And the way you could do that was to put a cost on it. If you could identify exactly how expensive it was mm. to be dull maybe people would take it more seriously. Mm. They wouldn't think it's a trivial thing. They wouldn't think it's okay to say it's fine. If you knew how much it was costing you to be dull, you'd treat it fundamentally differently. Yeah. And when Adam kind of came to me with the, um, the idea of putting a cost on dull, aside from the fact that I think it's just the most brilliant thing to do, I mean, lovely. I mean, this is something that I've been wrestling with in my analysis of the data for a long time now, because it's always been the case that there's been a pretty healthy slug of very, very dull campaigns in the IPA database. It's an effectiveness database. And uh, so just, just, just check, in the IPA database, these are award-winning or are these effective? They're not all award-winning. They're all entries. But they're, they're entries. They're entries. So somebody, somebody behind those campaigns felt there was a story to tell, an effective yeah. story to tell. And they do. I mean, some of them, it's relatively modest and others, it's stellar. But you are assuming that they... 
by they being have, submitted, they're they judged have, to be good already. They have an effectiveness yeah. story. And although that percentage has dropped, I mean, 20 years ago, a little over a third of them, I would, I'll, I'll define what I mean by dull in a moment. I probably should soon. Um, more than a third of them are dull. That percentage has dropped, which is reassuring. But it's still the case that about one in six of them I would define as being unquestionably dull. So what are they doing in an effectiveness database? And, you know, the, the one thing that I've wrestled with, and I've known this for many years, is that these campaigns have a lot of money behind them, an enormous amount of money behind them. So clearly you can get away with being dull if you have very deep pockets. And the extent to which that's the case is pretty astronomical. So prompted by Adam, the first thing I did was just to look at what the average budget of these dull case studies were compared to the high flyers. And this is early days in this project. You know, we've, we've yet to explore the subtleties. We've just taken the extremes. We've looked at dull campaigns, which are the ones that um, communicate messages. It's about facts and information. Um, you, you and Orlando at System One would probably talk about them as being very left brain kind of campaigns. And we've compared them with those case studies that are the most right brain, the ones that have big emotional responses and make people want to talk about them. So we've taken extremes to get a real sense of what the absolute extreme cost is. There's a big area in the middle, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, just to get a sense on this. And the difference in terms of average budgets is quite extraordinary. I mean, it's 11 percentage points of ESOV. That's the difference between share of voice and share of market, which are metric. If you put... Um, pound notes to that amongst the UK case studies, it means that these dull campaigns in this database typically spend about £15 million a year more than the ones that The are. dull campaigns have more money. They have £15 on million pounds more wow. spent on them than the non-dull campaigns. Now, that, of course, doesn't prove that they are less effective. It may just be that that's, that's the way the, the, the money rolled. But we can prove that that's the case because when we actually look at comparable performance metrics, when we say, let's look at what the budget levels were of dull case studies that achieved, and we're looking here first off at the top performance metric, and we can look at things like profit performance, we can look at market share growth, and so on. We've got, we've got a basket of six metrics. If we just compare like for like what the budgets were for those dull case studies that hit the high high effectiveness points with those very non-dull, the ones that, you know, the famous kind of campaigns, we see something very, very similar. It's in the 10 to 20 million pound mark. So there is a real indication in the UK market, obviously it's just one small market in the global scheme of things, of the cost to a typical brand. Depending on your category, it's going to be somewhere probably between 10 and 20 million pounds per annum, you are going to have to find as a marketer to buy yourself out of the dullness that your campaign has, has put you in. Dull means less effective. It doesn't necessarily mean ineffective. It means a lot less effective. And if you ain't got the money, you ain't going to get the results. And it's as simple as That's that. That's so interesting. Well, I mean, you asked me the question, didn't you, before we met up, uh, how does that compare to System 1 data? Yeah. So we look back at the database at 68,000 ads. So we test everything that airs in the UK. We test about 60% of ads that air, air in the US. So this is TV advertising. So I, I can't comment on other forms of advertising, but TV advertising. We've been doing that for around five years. So we've got five years of data, 68,000 ads. Um, 
two different ways of looking at it. Uh, so we measure emotional response, you know, happy, surprise, anger, contempt, et cetera, et cetera. We also have neutrality. So that's when people take the survey, so watching the ad, they have the option of saying they feel nothing. The percent of ads where, or the percent of all emotions reported across the database on over the last five years, 48% are saying they felt nothing by the end of the ad. So during the ad, you, know, you can feel nothing at the beginning, you can come in, but by the end of the ad, 48% of people have said they felt nothing. Now, when we translate that into business effects, I mean, we've got our five stars, you know, rating system, uh, one star would be it's predicted to have no impact whatsoever. Yeah. And again, 48% of ads achieve that. Now, an interesting twist, actually, which actually concurs to your IPA insight, which I wasn't expecting, is that the bigger the media spend, the duller the campaign. And it's very curious to know what you got, why, you, why you think that might be the case. But, it, you know, it's not, it's not dramatically so, but there's this gentle trend up that the, the higher the media spend, the more neutrality that we see in the database. Now, I've got a, I've got another um, another interesting uh, observation, which n n not as data backed as that, but I do see when we look at different categories on on the databases, we see the more interesting categories mm -hmm. tend to have the most dull advertising. The dullest category, you take bread, right? You know, fairly dull category, brilliant advertising. You know, it's almost that the constraint of the product forces you a bit like you were saying earlier, forces you to lean in and actually become more interesting in what you say. Yeah. Uh, so that's more of a hypothesis. I'd need to go and look at that a bit, a bit more. But certainly now, interestingly, we get a media uh, read from Nielsen on all the campaigns that we test. The value of that 48% in Nielsen measures is $68 billion. Mm. And I know for a fact, because again, I've, I've, I've been an advertiser myself and I'm able to compare what Nielsen say compared to the market. Uh, this is rounding a lot, but I think Nielsen pick about half the actual market spend. You know, if I look at what I actually spent as, a, as an advertiser compared to what Nielsen would suggest I spend, it's, it only picks up about half because there's many, many channels it doesn't read. So you could say that dullness is costing the British economy at least $68 billion. Now, this is US and UK US across, yeah. across oh, the I see. Okay. Yes. Right, US right. and UK, and it's okay, five years, right. and mm. it's, it's underestimated at least by half. So, $130 billion over five years, US and UK. And we could split to work that between these numbers. Yeah. I mean, we'll yeah. probably find that we come out somewhere very close in terms yeah. of the impact of a typical. Because, I mean, the kind of brands that I work with in the IPA data are probably not so wildly different from yours in the sense that there is a skew to bigger brands because it tends to be mass market brands that would be interested in, in your services and who tend to enter. Um, so I think we'll probably find that we come out with some quite... But that that's a job to be done. It'd be yeah. great to do it, yeah. wouldn't it? It'd be yeah, fascinating. Do it. Yeah. So it does lead you to the obvious question, why? Well... Well, I think I think we all do. I think there are lots of factors. I mean, the one thing I would not for a moment suggest it's because the marketers themselves are dull. I mean, I work with a lot of marketers who are desperately trying to do um, much more interesting stuff. And there are sometimes um, internal reasons. And Adam will have come across a lot of it with his um, his studies into pirates. Sometimes companies have rules and systems and things that you know suppress and restrain it. And that is clearly an issue for some clients. But I think there are lots of others, uh, other reasons as well. We live in days when we are, as marketers, increasingly being told to follow the science. And of course, science is good in some ways. It teaches us not to make dumb mistakes. But as we all know, high-performing marketing and advertising campaigns 
go way beyond science. You know, you have to allow room for creative magic. You have to allow room for the inspiration to do that. Um, and the trouble, of course, with many of the great creative roots and the great creative inspirations is they they will not generalise across an entire population of marketing. There really isn't room for every campaign, every brand in a market to be famous. By definition, they can't all be famous, can they? So, um, you know, these things don't generalise. So they will never appear in the science as such because they will not work across all brands. I think the obsession with science runs a risk of minimising the drive for creativity. But there's a far worse pressure as well, I think, and a far worse explanation for all of this, which is one we've already talked a little bit about and alluded to, which is the impact of 15 years at least now of what I call performance marketing think, which is, you know, uh, and we know from the work that your colleague Orlando Wood has done that that impact of performance marketing think uh, has had a an impact on on brand building you know it, it's kind of polluted the whole way we think so performance marketing is about getting a result now it's about the right now how do i make someone who is predisposed to some degree to my brand actually get out and buy it now so it's very different it's very left brain to use orlando's thinking it's in your face it's those nudges that make us do it now now that is the very opposite of how we build brands and seduce people in and make people feel good about our brands, which has to be done in a very different way. We've had 15 years of, you know, tools and techniques and thinking coming out, particularly of the big social media networks that tell us the way to make people buy now is to follow these best practice rules. And it's permeated a generation of young creatives and a generation of young marketers. And we have to reset that. Now, we have to get back to appreciating not just the importance of brands, but how you build brands. And there's a craft and an art and a magic to doing that. And there are no paint-by-numbers rule books that we can follow. And if there were, they'd become invalid tomorrow. So, um, you know, we, 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 we have to push back against that. And I think there is a growing understanding of that. But by God, is there a long hmm. way to go before I think... The, curi the curious thing is it comes back to the scale point because... I think logically you would imagine the best marketers should be running the biggest brands in the largest companies. You know, they, they can afford to pay the best and they can afford they can afford training courses to go and send all their marketers out to learn how to market. So why would the best marketing organisations, you know, be tending towards more dull rather than more interesting? I think one of the things that is going on is a kind of a flight to safety in that the bigger you are, the greater the danger to corporate reputation from blowback. Nobody wants to be the next Bud Light. So there's a lot of caution out there, frankly. And I think there's a confusion of risk and responsibility there. People think that the responsible thing to do is to play it a bit safe. Whereas, in fact, you know, it's very expensive to play it safe, as we've just seen. I think the other thing that's going on, I was talking to a fascinating guy who uh, called Nick Reed, who's an Oscar-winning documentary maker who's started a company with a couple of other partners called Shareability in the States, which is the leading viral ad kind of company in the States. And he talks about the fact that actually what he sees is that the bar for marketing and dull within companies is far too low. That There's a real bar that's much higher. You look at the bar on TikTok for, for how quickly something gets skipped within two seconds. It's much, much higher than the bar most marketers are seeing. And so there's a completely out of touch nature about how we are measuring what is dull and what is interesting that is very easily sold. We just need to lean into it and really grasp that nettle, I think. I, 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 mm. lo I love the idea that your benchmark would be it's unskippable. 
Yeah. Because that, that would be a wonderful benchmark, wouldn't it, for any, yeah. any bit of, you know, it doesn't get made mm. unless it's unskippable, demonstrably unskippable. That'd be a really good bar. And, and, and quite quickly, right? So Spotify, I think it's 25% of songs are skipped in the first three seconds. Is that right? Something like that. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. very quick. Yeah. Why mm. should the behaviour be any different with us? Yeah. That's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> There's another interesting aspect to the cost of dull, I think, which... It's worth briefly talking about and impossible to dimensionalize in the same kind of way. But there's a very interesting book. Um, it's a, a Sunday Times bestseller called The Examined Life by a guy called Stephen Gross, who's a psychoanalyst. And, psycho and, in, and in the book, he takes a series of chapters and he talks about individual cases and what we can learn from them. And one of them is about a guy who's very boring. And the, the patient is so boring that Stephen Gross, the analyst, gets bored in the sessions himself and he's supposed to be treating this guy. And he realises in the conclusion that actually it's a deliberate strategy by the guy. He's being boring to exclude Stephen Gross and everybody else from his life. And I like really taken by the idea that being dull is excluding people. It's excluding consumers, excluding colleagues. So when we make a dull presentation to our teams to try and engage them, actually you're excluding them from participating in the success that you need to make. If you are, for instance, a democratizer as a brand, as your channel narrative, and you're being dull, you're excluding rather than including people. It's a really interesting dynamic. And I don't know how to get substantive about that, but it seems quite an important thought in all of this somewhere. Now, I think if you're trying to avoid being blamed for anything, being dull is probably a good way. It's the yeah, tall poppy you're thing, absolutely isn't right. it? That's exactly the same. And what, we, what, we, what I have found in the past, and this is, I'm sure, a work that needs updating, is that when we talk about these high-performing approaches, kind of great creativity, but powerful emotional kind of work, there is, a, there is higher risk associated with that. Get it right, you get it very right, get it wrong, and you can fall flat on your face. Whereas when you take these very dull, safe kind of message approaches, you're never going to, you know, you're never going to be on that podium getting the marketing award for effectiveness, sure. But you're also not very likely to have something that completely backfires. You're, you're never, you know, you're, you're never going to have a backlash because of having done something that is patently um, annoying to people. So you, you, you occupy this apparently safe middle ground where you're, you're, you're never going to be great and you're never going to be terrible. The problem, I think, um, that has arisen in marketing over the many years that we will not go into, that Adam and I have, have been in this business, is that the affordability of dullness has got worse. I mean, back 40 years did I said the number? Sorry, Adam, 40 <laughs> years ago. 40 years ago, there were many marketers with deep pockets who could afford to get away with it. The brand leaders in many categories, usually there was enough margin in their business and in their brands to be able to say, okay, so I'm going to have to spend twice as much as or three times as much as the challenger, but I can afford to do that. And that percentage, I think, has now declined enormously. There are very few businesses that can really afford to shoulder those kinds of costs. Um, so, you know, That's very interesting, it's, isn't it? yeah. it's not a place anyone wants to be. And so we're going back to that original thing from the industrial theatre guy. Very few of us can afford to bore the audience anymore. Mm. But we're not really recognising that. I was wondering whether the sense of danger plays here, because at the beginning you were talking about the the miners, and I was just, it just occurred to me, actually, that the one of the best examples are safety videos when you fly. Mm. I mean, I just flew BA somewhere on holiday and they got a really good safety video. I mean, it, you know, back in the day, we'd all just kind of ignore the safety video, wouldn't it? As, you know, with, with, when they did, went through the same routine again, it became incredibly dull, didn't it? Yeah. But now the safety videos are almost Saturday night entertainment well, and quality. New, and New Zealand almost built their brand yeah, on safety Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, New Zealand ones yeah. are fantastic. Yeah. And, and Virgin, before, I think you were in your first yeah. book pointed out 
that you know one of the great things about great challenger brands is they see every everything is a media yeah. and why shouldn't a safety video be? i think it's a great well, it's, it's a very insight. nice link that to the mining video i hadn't thought about that it's absolutely right isn't it but I wonder whether your closeness to danger actually does inform it. Because if, if I look at the advertising I've made, the best advertising has have, has been made when I'm closest to the sense of danger. We have to do something. We have to act. I don't have much money. What, what, suddenly when you've got money, you, you, you can then, or you've got process or you've got, you know, approvals or, you, you know, you've got committee. You know, as soon as you put that that in there, you end up doing what you know will get consensus, what you know will get through the system, what you know won't get you fired. Mm. Whereas actually when you're the only person and you've got to do it or your brand won't survive, suddenly you have to. Mm. You, well, you I, I remember to talking to you when you just started working at Juice Burst and you had no money at all. And you said to me, my general principle here, Adam, is if I've got no money and I've got to make the brand success, I need a world record. Yes. I remember yeah, saying that, yeah. frankly. That was your metric. It was like it was. very high bar, yeah, frankly. That was your KPI. And you, and you created one. <laughs> so, I'm still talking about it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no. exactly. but, but that, that was it. I, I, you know, in, in that situation, I, I, had to, I had to be very famous with every soft drink buyer in the country. Because yeah. unless I was famous with those, probably 40 of them in the country that matter, yeah. you know, as long as they'd heard of me and they thought what I was selling was amazing, it would get me onto the bottom rung of, you know, distribution, mm. which would start to, you know. But yeah, but yeah I, I had to have something that would mm. no one else could talk and about. And actually, hearing you talk about it, it reminds me, I mean, there's another kind of big leap forward, I think, that has been made in recent years, is it used to be assumed that these kind of consumer rules about effectiveness didn't apply in the world of B2B and your oh. experience. Absolutely confirms that oh, even yeah. in a B two B buying world, um, it still matters. That there is well, can I give you the, can I give you the data on this? I do. Know, do I do know the answer on this. Very good. The, the dull percent. Have a guess. We and, said forty eight. All B two B communication. Forty eight percent is is B two C. By the way, B two C. I have done. Yeah. I have checked. And B two B is presumably greater, but. 80, well, 78%. 78%. Wow, yeah. that's so there you go. It's almost four wow. So So 78% of responses to B2B ads are neutrality. Right. Well, I'm using the one star as a proxy right. for that. So I'll, I'll check the exact percentage. LinkedIn, are you listening? But, <laughs> they, they, to be fair, they are. No, To be fair, LinkedIn, yeah. they yeah. lean into this yeah. brilliantly and they've been yeah. advocating for brand building for, yeah. for three no, or four indeed. years. Amazingly, actually. Big, big plug for them. Yeah. Um, in fact, I always find it that they're still quoting that seventy-eight percent. You know, even we 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 did it, we came up with it together about three or four years ago. Mm. I always find it quite ironic. They are the B two B media, aren't they? And they're reminding everybody, come on, we should do something about this because seventy-eight percent is uh, well. We're using one star as the metric, which is a proxy for mm. proxy for dull. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. But no, B, no, I, I'm I'm passionate about B two B because I. It, most marketers don't even realise they're in B two B. So if you're if you're managing, if I go back to my old days of Juice Burst, it doesn't matter how much the consumer wants it. If I can't get into Tesco no, to get on the shelves, I'm I'm sunk. Yes. So you've got to win the B two B battle. And the thing that the, the mistake everyone makes is that well, B two B has got to be rational, it's got to be left brained and all this kind of thing. Well, we don't stop mm. being human beings mm. because we're suddenly behind a desk, do yeah. we? And, and actually, um, so I think it's a massive opportunity in B two B to, you know, mm. uh, get this right. One of the things I, I I love reading, you know, Eat Big Fish and, and and your other books as well is how you draw insight from different categories. I think it's one of the fascinating things you do is looking at, you know, a challenge in one industry and seeing how another industry approaches the same kind of thing. 
When you're looking at the cost of DAO, have you done that in this case as well to try and see how DAO might be approached in different categories? Yeah, so um, the cost of DAO is kind of twin. The converse twin is called Let's Make This More Interesting. And that's the project that I'm working on, indeed the podcast that um, is going to come out a little bit later in September. And that is a series of interviews, largely with people outside marketing whose job it is to make dull subjects interesting. So the reality TV, reality TV producer whose job is Adam Auditions, voice of an angel, but boy, is he dull. She's got six weeks to make sure when Adam walks out on stage and Simon Cowell says, tell me about yourself, Adam, the audience doesn't die of boredom. She said, actually, you've got 90 seconds to make someone feel something about Adam. Um, teacher, science teacher, of whom he says... 30% of my class are inter interested in covalent bonding, the rest are not. I've got to make it interesting and make it memorable for a year till the exam next year. Someone who's teaching classical rhetoric uh, to help kids um, speak up for themselves more when they leave school. Um, so uh, the, the head writer of, of Sesame Street for 20 years. So interesting people in very different kinds of areas saying, you know, it, we had to make this interesting because the stakes are too high. What can we learn from them? And I'm very early stages of this. And one of the intriguing things, I think, is is they all have slightly different models, but I bet actually all the models link up to some of the stuff we know a bit about. So, for instance, let me tell you a little bit about the teacher. So the teacher's fascinating because there's quite a lot of research that's happened in teaching recently. And he says, look, there's four basic bits of research that underpin everything I do. So the first is the idea of cognitive overload. Okay, so you'll know a little bit about this. I'm sure you have the same kind of thing, which is cognitive overload is where I get so much information at the same time, I can't absorb it all. And there's two ways that actually her cognitive overload is triggered. One is I get too much information and the second is delivered badly. I bet most of that B2B is to do with cognitive overload. Too many messages in there because they assume that actually I'm in some rational receptive mode and actually it's badly delivered. So I'm just kind of tuning out. Second thing they say is, uh, the teacher says, is you've got to make an emotional connection very early on. So he says, if I'm talking about forces, I'll put a picture up of my dog with his head out the window and the ears flapping. And I'll say, what's going on here, kids? I'm just connect, they'll connect to the dog in a way that they won't connect to me drawing a picture of forces. The third thing he talks about is um, chunking. So you've got to break things down into much smaller units and share bits of information bit by bit, which again, I think is interesting in terms of content and how brands communicate and businesses communicate content. And the fourth is what he calls dual loading. So it's essentially, it's the idea that um, you're, and again, you, you all know much more about this than I do, but the brain processes um, verbal information and visual or sensory information through separate channels. So if you're trying to get people to remember something, you need to have a single image, you know, about covalent bonding, for instance, single image that combines words in the picture in a simple, memorable way. And that way they'll remember it till next year. And I was thinking about this and I thought it's fascinating because that seems so important because actually most of us, particularly challengers, we are trying to educate or re-educate the customer about the category, right? But we pay no attention to what teachers are doing. And isn't it interesting, that notion of that kind of, um, you know, that, that kind of dual sense of it, we don't do that anymore, particularly in a world where we're moving away from campaigns completely and it's about individual ads. And then I thought, actually, of course, there was a time when we were very good at doing that. You go back to the 60s, you go back to Tony the Tiger saying they're great or the Pillsbury Doughboy or those, you know, Leo Burnett, those great kind of particularly American, they kind of intuitively understood that. And that's why... I mean, clearly, you know, you're too young, John, but Peter and I could sing you jingles from when we were kids that were stuck in our mind. Whereas I don't think our kids will be doing that in 20 years' time. 
So is there something that we've lost, actually, which the teacher understands that we don't, about making something interesting and memorable that we can bring back into marketing? Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating talking about Orlando's work. He's, he's, he's researching, uh, doing a lot of research at the moment for his course. And uh, the, the beginning bit of his course is going to look back at a bit of history of, of you know, advertising. And it's amazing how many quotes and stories he's got, which actually, exactly as you say, some of the greats from the 1960s and 70s, the, the things they're saying are things we now know scientifically, you know, now know from evidence, are things that work. So, you know, jingles, you know, sticking in the brain and being remembered. Or, um, I mean, Orlando refers to it as fluent devices, but like Tony the Tiger is a brilliant one. So having an animal on the front of your cereal pack dressed up like a human is is surprising, right? It catches your attention. And um, we have an amazing connection with animals because, you know, you know, in terms of how our right brain, we make, you know, we make that connection. In fact, um, it's often my cheat. If I ever, if, if I ever give people one bit of advice, put an animal in your ad, you know, it's a bit of a joke. And, you know, when we had Ritson on at Christmas, we're looking at the top five ads of the year. I think three of them had had animals in sort of thing. So we were kind of joking as a bit of a shortcut. But, but you know, we, we do respond emotionally. And if you can own the animal, like the meerkats or Tony the Tiger, and be, create an association with your brand, you've got surprise, you've got happiness, you've got memory, you know, all, all happening. And yeah. uh, it, it works incredibly well. So, no, there's, it's funny, isn't it, how you triangulate I guess it makes sense, but you triangulate teaching to advertising and how how the, how they connect up in that way. I think it's really interesting. So another related one was um, the head writer at Sesame Street, and clearly he worked with Muppets, so he had you know had that on his side. But I said, so what's the secret of getting preschoolers to learn? And he said you had to create little dramas, and essentially you came up with a dramatic idea first, and then you worked out what you wanted to use it to talk about. Um, so I said, what's the heart of a little drama? And he said, well, the character has to really want something. They have to really want something. And then they have to have a blockage. And that's what makes for the drama. I thought, again, that's interesting because you look at challenges. I know what Tony's wants. I know what Oakley wants. I know what mm. Black Market wants. It's very clear what they want. And that impatient wanting is the thing that makes them as dramatic as they are, right? The reason why Tony's has got that, you know, sort of wonderfully kind of fractured bar is it's impatient for you to understand that it, what it understands in that kind of way. And, and whereas conversely, I think one of the problems with corporate purpose as a whole is that is a kind of corporate statement of want, but there's no impatience or real desire there too often. Not always. I think many companies do. But that whole sense of, you know, a character has to desire something to drive the story forward, that's such a simple thought. I just don't see it very much in marketing. I look at a head and shoulders ad, I've got no idea what they want. No. They just Those are just characters talking, right? There's nothing really under other than setting the head and shoulders. So I'm really stimulated by what we can learn from outside our category and these other people making our subjects interesting and, and how that might help us overcome the cost of dull and get people to rethink it. Now, you mentioned 40 years. So, you know, you, you look and you've both written some of the most profound, you know, game-changing kind of, you know, textbooks, you know, in the category. As we look forward, we've got this AI coming over the hill, right? If anything was going to create dull, presumably it's AI. What can, what, I mean, well, firstly, do you think that's going to be the case? But what can we do in the face of so much automation, and, you know, t- taking over the whole process of creativity could, could get worse, not better. I mean, we are obviously in the relatively early days of AI, I'm sure. And there will be those um, who uh, believe in it who will say, yes, you wait. It'll, it'll, it'll show its creative potential. I remain very sceptical. I think you're probably right. It will tend to kind of average things. It'll be learned creativity, which is mimicking, which isn't real creativity. I mean, one of the great things about the human brain is its ability to make these kind of 
wild lateral leaps that just work somehow. That's, you know, great comedy, great writing, great movies. A lot of them, and of course, great advertising are often built on these just amazingly lateral leaps. And you sit there and you think, whoa, where did that come from? What was, you know, what was the creative team on? And that's, that's, that I think is not going to come out of AI, at least not in our best Let me try a different view. So I agree that I don't think AI is going to win any can lions. But in a world that you've just said, John, 80% of B2B is, is essentially a failure. It's a good point. I'd be quite it's frightened if I was in B2B yeah. marketing and yeah. or advertising yeah. agents. Because surely AI can do better than that. Frankly. No, you're absolutely right. And I think well, it'll drag us out of the mire. It's early, so. it's early days. Um, we, yeah. we, we tested a uh, pizza ad that was entirely made with AI. And the average score I- I- of all pizza ads on our space, we've got a fair mm. few, is uh, 2.7 stars. The pizza ad, 2.7 stars. Right. <laughs> it was literally the same. It Because what it did is it pulled from, as you said, pulled from all the available information about what makes a pizza yeah. ad, you know, the cheese mm. kind of you know, mm. being yeah. stretched up and the slice being served. Uh, it, it was perfectly generic. I mean, perfectly, beautifully generic, you know. So if you want a generic ad for much less you, money. Yes, yeah, so if you want to save costs, but, I mean, if, yeah, if efficiency is your game. The question is, though, if that... If if the AI had access to effectiveness data, would it? Oh, Peter, there's so no I idea. don't know. There you go. But it's My a scary words. What thought. could it do it's with the system one day? But then, but then we would all have lookalike ads that had followed best practice, and it would no longer be best practice. No, course. but it, it is interesting. So, so, so the, like the reality TV producer, right? She mm. she condensed all her years of experience into a single mm. ambition, which was she said, you know, it's all about make me laugh, make me cry, surprise me. If you can mm. do that, those three things in one piece of content. Yeah. And I know that System 1 yeah. reinforces that. Yeah. If you could put that into AI and say, that's your yes. brief, yeah. Yeah. in B2B, by the way, yeah. surely you could get above yeah. 80%. No, I think, surely. I think that's a valid point. That is a valid point. Okay, great. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. It started here. No, I think, yeah. I think, but it is going to be a bit like, it, it, it's never going to take us to the troughs, but it's probably never going to take us to the highs of, of you know, great thinking. It'll, But it'll be a good, safe, sensible middle ground for a lot of marketers. So it may well do some good in the early days, but it's just going to be more safe. It's, it? it's already won a photography prize, right? Was that prize that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that the, the, the so-called winner had to recuse themselves because it all been done through AI? Yes. So yeah. it might surprise us. There might be, I'd be, I'm sure there'll be a surprised jury at some point in the next five years. Yeah. So thinking about inspiration then, as you're doing your research, who, which categories or which brands or which people are doing a good job of being interesting and not being dull? Well, inevitably, I suppose I would say um, challenges. I, I mean, I, I, I think the kind of the usual suspects within the challenger world that we've talked about, I think, because they have to be, they're endlessly surprising and interesting. I think what's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, clearly, you know, Oakley has been talked about an awful lot and clearly it's had its own ups and downs in terms of business recently, but the way they physically restructured their marketing department so that it was primarily writers and creatives in it, they op- operated effectively more of a fashion model where the, you know, the head of the writing team, John, has a direct kind of link with the CEO, that's quite a stimulating way of thinking about how might you have to reorganise yourself to be constantly interesting. So I'm as much interested about culturally, how do you create the ability to do that consistently rather than just spike and decay again? That's a really interesting question for us, I think, because it's not just about taking content inside. It's about actually how do you reorganise to, you know, to, to, to keep 
stimulating the audience and indeed ourselves in the right kind of way i, th- I think you're right probably the answer is probably process it, you know it's not that we as humans are dull it's not that creative people are dull it's not that marketing teams want to be dull or agencies want to create dull work i mean the most interesting bit of creative i oversaw when i was at lucas aid was probably the one and i remember this quite i remember, I remember being pitched the idea and i went that's brilliant and i said um do you know what i'm not going to see it until it's done it's so good. I don't even want to be involved. And I remember telling my boss at the time, I said, you're going to see this on TV for the first time. Sort of thing. I was that confident in it. But, and, and then the one that I obsessed about and like, you know, we, we had loads of meetings about ended up being category average. You know, so, so I, I think some of the, sometimes the answers are in how you do it. Well, I guess so building on that. So I was talking earlier on about how the guy at Sesame Street said what they did was they came up with the uh, you know, dramatic idea first and then they worked out what they wanted to communicate through it. Interestingly, this bunch shareability that I was talking about, the viral studio, they do exactly the same thing. So they monitor kind of what is culturally trending. They think about what's an interesting idea we could do around that latches onto that. Because we know that's interesting to people. Then we'll work out how we get you know, the brand message into that. So they do, you know, for Peter and I start off at planners, that is really antithetical to everything we were taught, which is the strategy comes first and then you do the idea. Mm. But the idea that actually these days, the primacy of an idea being really interesting is important. And then you need to somehow seamlessly integrate what the message is. I think is fascinating. Well, it sort of brings us back to our TikTok point, doesn't it? You've got millions of creators out there and a a democratic audience who are all voting for basically the most interesting content. and, And that's where you start. Yeah. What captures attention, what, you know, creates emotion and what leads to people to do something. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, I think what we're, we've, we've, we've kind of come back to a point we, um, we were talking about earlier on is it is probably better to be interesting, even if we may be strategically weak, than it is to be strategically correct oh. and dull. So, you know, because the costs of dull are mounting all the while. If you're dull online, if you're dull on TikTok, you are invisible. I mean, Zippo. Um, whereas in the old days, legacy media, you know, the, 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 you know, the media buy would at least buy you some attention. So I'm very interested, as, as I'm sure you know, in, in the whole business of attention metrics, because I think this is a really positive thing that's come along. Um, uh, and it's taught us a lot about um, the challenges of getting brands into people's heads in digital media. And, you know, it's partly down to the platform, but it's also down to the, you know, the extent to which that piece of creative can persuade someone not to scroll past or look at another device. Or... Yeah, it's really fascinating to say that because, yeah. I, I mean, me having spent sort of 20 years of my career as a, you know, in marketing, doing it, and then last four years, being in advertising research, which is quite mm. quite odd in some senses, I've learned so much. But weirdly, if I were to go back and apply what I've learned now and put myself back in the position, I've been in so many meetings that you've just described perfectly, which you get presented strategically the right creative. Mm. And then there's always this slightly crazy idea that is just really compelling and emotive, but isn't on brief, yeah. on brief, he says mm. in quotes. Yeah. Knowing what I know now, I'd go for interesting. Yeah. Mm. Because basically, if you don't capture attention, you don't make people feel something, mm. you're not going to be remembered. Mm. And, and actually, you're, that's, that's your bigger job. You know? But I, I know so many marketers that will be sat there going, that's not on brief, mm. you know, for these reasons, and would deconstruct why kind of thing. And I've been in those meetings so many times. Yeah, I mean, there is a, you know, it is a really interesting debate. And I don't think, I, I don't think any of us are here advocating lunatic creative that kind of gets noticed and, and, and followed simply 
for all the wrong reasons. It's got to have some consistency with the brand. But you're, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the vital thing is that it gets noticed. And what we do know from a lot of, a lot of case studies is that the great creative ideas, the ones that people love and talk about, tend to tick a lot of boxes. It's a funny thing. You know, I could show you loads of case studies and loads of ads where all sorts of brand metrics leapt, you know, product ratings, product associations leapt, and they were never even mentioned or alluded to in the ad it's because the ad created an aura of success and popularity and that made the mental associations happen in people's heads anyway so we can get too obsessed with a checkbox kind of uh, list of strategic requirements of our advertising we've got to show this we've got to show it's available there you know we've got to show people using it at this time of day Get a great idea and all of those are going to come with and it. And this is where the understanding of the brain, like we are talking about you know, Ian McGilchrist's book, Master's Emissary, is so interesting because the right brain draws association and implicit uh, mm. understanding. It makes the connections. Whereas if we approach from a left brain point of view, we want to tell people the APR rates and the how many months to repay. Mm. And actually we did, we did a system one test years ago now, actually, with two banking ads. One banking ad clearly demonstrated its saving rates and it's great customer service and it's availability to get on the phone and, you know, how many branches it had up and down the country. The other one, I, I can't remember the exact creative, I think it had a, you know, a horse running through a field and, and, and great music playing and, and all the rest of it. When we tested it and we, we asked the whole room to kind of vote on which one they thought landed, good value for money, uh, you know, 24-7 availability. We went through all the kind of things, right? The horse running through a field smashed it on every <laughs> single rational message mm, right. and it's this really cu- really curious conclusion which is if you want to communicate a rational message you need to use emotion yeah mm. and it's it, it mm. and weirdly with system one we use rational data to prove the power of emotion we kind of reverse it mm. in that sense to try and get people to you know and you, you write about the messages as well often what we tell people in debriefs is take at least half your messages away mm. and the more messages you put in it's almost like you're putting a a filter in front of people that mm. if you have the words on the screen, you have the voiceover, you have the mm. this message, that message, you know, what you do is the more you layer in, the more you separate yourself from, you know, people's mm. emotional engagement. So that in itself is a very interesting thought. Why isn't that more widely known than it is? I've never heard any clients say that to me. I recognise mm. it because it's, you know, mm. implicit in what, and explicit in what Peter talks about. And you're, you're articulating it very clearly based on a comparative test. That should be a world famous test, really. Mm. Mm. we're we're trying to make it the only only answer i can give is 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 why we're in business from system one point of view anyway is we're just here to make the rational case for emotion and Mm. and make it obvious and dramatic in in the kind of reports we use Mm. to sort of prove it you know i I think it's a good question i don't yeah the answer is probably that the people that it's probably process that the people that are signing off or involved in briefing or doing the work Mm are in a mode of thinking which means that success is ticking rational boxes and that I've got to be seen to making sure that this campaign will tell everybody about our new feature. It sounds, listening to you, that you know, quite apart from the important task of identifying what interesting looks like, mm-hmm. that we should be also identifying what dull looks like and be quite clear. We should have a masterclass in dull here, shouldn't we? So everybody knows what dull is. Because I think, you know, I think it's easy for us because we all spend our lives studying 
campaigns, we, we kind of have a good mental picture of what the spectrum is from dull to very, very interesting. But perhaps it just needs to be spelled out, more, particularly for this safe middle ground where you might feel you're being very interesting. But as, as Adam's pointed out, increasingly um, the stakes are rising all the time. Being interesting is getting more and more difficult. Um, and therefore you need to keep that sense of, of, of momentum going with it. So, yeah, let's have a real, let's have a how to be dull project as opposed to how to be really interesting project. Do them side by side. Twins. Well, well, I think that's the perfect cliffhanger probably to end it is, is, is put out the, the idea that we're going to regroup and dramatise dull for everybody. Fantastic. Fantastic. I think, yeah. And perhaps share further thoughts on what makes it more interesting. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, hopefully they'll leave inspired and interested yeah, rather than just absolutely. bored To come back to John's earliest point, you know, you know. We, after the tears has got to come. <laughs> exactly. So, the perfect can, story, exactly. We'll bore we them to, to tears and then show them just how fun How interesting are. it can yeah. be. Yeah. They wept at the money they wasted. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, Adam and Peter, thank you very much for coming on together as well. Uh, returning guest, uh, really Double Act. And, and, and the cost of Dahl, I think, is a brilliant subject. And uh, I can't wait to see where we go next with it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you again for listening to Sunset CMO. I hope you weren't bored in this episode because our mission was to make sure we eradicate dull. So hopefully you were interested to hang on to the end to listen to me tell you about it. Um, if you want to find out more, please do hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, hit the subscribe button there. You can contact me at John Evans uh, over at LinkedIn or on Twitter at Uncensored CMO. Thank you so much 